You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. How are you doing? I'm great, Paul. How are you? I'm pretty good. Not too bad. Tonight uh, and tomorrow and over the weekend, we are going to have massive amounts of rain. Uh, And uh, I decided to drive out to the Richmond office tonight to, uh, to record the podcast, despite the impending rain I'm scared I'm going to go out and it's rain again, rain again, rain again, rain again, rain again. Yeah. I thought I thought it wasn't supposed to start until tomorrow, which is Friday, which will be tonight for the podcast listeners. Well, I think the media is hyping it up. They're always Hype hyping the it up. Yeah. 150 millimeters, which is only 15 centimeters. That's a lot of rain. That's a lot of rain. I mean, I don't, we're moving don't office and I'm the one who's actually doing the moving and I'm going to be moving some more office stuff tomorrow. So, Well, I mean, I'd come and help move if you want me to carry like anything that's under five pounds. Yeah, not much value to that. I, yeah. uh, we have an overhead door on our, um, on our loading bay in our old building that we're moving out of. It's an old building, like it's a 120-year-old building and there's an old freight elevator and there's this door. And the door is steel, and it is heavy. And all these years, I've struggled with the thing. And now that I've been doing this, I've probably taken 50 loads out of there of, of stuff, moving it from one office to the next. I actually, for the listeners, I actually decided just to move the office myself. Um, yeah, because Yeah. But uh, I've gone from struggling to lift that door, needing help to lift that door, to today I twice just lifted the door with my right arm, and I didn't even notice it. I had a cup of coffee in my left. So either I've loosened it up, or I've, gain some muscle in, uh, in this project. And that's good. You know, it's rather than going to the gym, I'm actually accomplishing right. something. Well, there you go. If I, if my office ever gets moved and I ever come back and I ever see you again, you might have like one gigantic, like the Hulk like arm. Yeah. My right arm. I actually had that years and years ago. I, uh, when I was 17 years old, I was working in a, uh, a shop in Edmonton that repaired meat hooks for the Gainer's meat packing plant, among other things. And I used to hammer out the axles from uh, damaged meat hooks before we could re- weld them and repair them. And I used to do it with a pin and a hammer. And I, you know, you would think it would be the smart way to do it would be with a press. Uh, right. But I did it this way, and I ended up with my right arm being a big sort of monstrous thing compared to my left for a little while. Well, Paul, the listeners don't come here to hear about my monster your, arm. No. Your monster arm, but I do actually want to touch very briefly on the rain because you and I notice a significant trend whenever we have these big rainy periods. Yes, we do. Well, we notice a few trends, but one of the trends is, go ahead, say it. It's it's hit and run season. Yeah, it's hit and run season, and uh, you know, I I joke with the police officers uh, about it, but it's just something that happens every year. Um, when it gets rainy and wet, people don't want to get out of their cars at accidents. Uh, people don't want the scrutiny. Sometimes they've been drinking. Sometimes they're, you know, traveling under the cover of darkness for a reason, and they don't want to be investigated for something else. Uh, and uh, it's rainy, and 
they persuade themselves that they can leave the scene of the accident. And so hit and run season is upon us. And yeah, there's a, a flood of those files coming at us. I mean, there are also, I, I, I think, a lot of people who just legitimately don't understand what they're supposed to do if they're involved in an accident. Um, and so they leave because they're terrified about what might happen to them when they're totally sober, when they've done nothing wrong, when it's cheerily an accident. And they take off out of, like, the panic of the unknown. Sometimes they are scared of dealing with the other person. And they figure mm -hmm. they'll just get home and phone the police. And then as they're driving away, I mean, you're, 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 after an accident, you're not thinking clearly, right? There's just, it's mm -hmm. so much happening to you. That adrenaline's pumping through your body. Um, and it's not just that people are trying to escape liability uh, when they leave the scene of an accident. But, of course, there's an obligation to stay there and, and deal with it. Uh, but, you know, in the times that I've had accidents, I've had uh, not great, uh, not, not great uh, connection with the people who struck my vehicle uh, or, mm -hmm. you know, in the one case when I was struck from behind and struck a vehicle in front of me. Nobody's really happy to see you. No, no, nobody, nobody's happy at accident scenes. And I prefer to avoid confrontation. And I think many people are probably the same as me that way. Nobody's happy happy at accident scenes except Eric McGracken. Uh, I don't know that he's happy about it, but I think he is resigned to the fact that his his career as a lawyer is, uh, yeah, I know, but I've got to defend Eric here, you know. He's like, he, feels he, he's he like my half-brother. He called himself on this podcast a proud ambulance chaser, so. Well, there you go. Anyway. So what um, are we talking about? What are we talking about this week? Well, this week. I think we're all going to learn something. Okay, I'm here to learn. The first thing we're going to learn about has to do with DUI recidivism, because you found a fascinating study, and I think extremely useful in sentencing, um, a fascinating study on what are predictors of recidivism in impaired driving cases. I really should be taking notes for all of these things when I get them, so I remember them for sentencing. But this is one that's going to stick in my mind. There's another oh, yeah. one. That, there's another one that sticks in my mind too, but I don't want to mention it in any sentencing. But we'll get to that. This is okay. an interesting one. Um, so essentially, the authors of this uh, study, which was published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, so like a legit peer-reviewed journal. Um, uh, these people studied, um, repeat DUI offenders, um, who had got, like, had a first and then a second DUI charge. And they looked at, um, a seven-year period, um, for people, anybody who had a blood alcohol concentration of, uh, 0.05, so the WARN limit in BC. And, uh, the, they considered, uh, a recidivist group. And they also had a control group of people who only offended once. Um, and they looked at all these different factors to try and determine whether there are any sociological, economic, or environmental, or other factors that might predict a person's likelihood to become a repeat DUI offender. And the analysis and the conclusions that they came to are just fascinating. Yeah, I don't know that that's necessarily what they were looking for um, when it came to this conclusion, but the conclusion ultimately is that, uh, let me see, this is page 711, our results suggest that heavy smoking may be a predictor of risky alcohol intake leading to DUI. 
that's the weirdest thing. And they said, you know, we're going to have to study this more because there's no obvious connection between I smoke a lot and I drink a drug. Well, there, <laughs> there is a... maybe. I mean, it's not an obvious connection, but there is maybe. I mean, it's, uh, it's um, okay, so it's a risky behavior, right? Smoking is risky mm-hmm. behavior. Uh, yeah. Of course, smoking is also an addiction. Uh, alcohol is also an addiction for many people. Um, so it may indicate a person who's a, just a risk taker who's more likely to fall into addiction. Or but, a propensity <clears throat> for addiction just generally, because, you know, there's some schools of thought that addiction is, is, you know, ingrained in your DNA. And that may be. But, you know, you think about this, the results of this, uh, and think about the issue of rehabilitating people. You know, should we, should the responsible dr- driver program, for example, not be putting people through that pro- course unless they're smokers? Should smokers be subject to some other, should they have to tell the, the uh, when they get their driver's license, confirm whether or not they are smokers? Should police be targeting people who are smokers? Mm-hmm. And then, and then, what about reliability of breath tests? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, We've is, never talked about thought. that, and we should. I'm going to take a little note, and we're going to talk about that before this is done, because that's something else that people should learn about. Well, that was actually my thought, um, but I, I want to circle back to that in a minute, because I did want to talk about the threshold of like what they constituted heavy smoking, because it's not that high. It's 20, 20 cigarettes. cigarettes a day. Yeah, yeah. That's a pack a day. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's, I think, in BC, that would be high. Most of us don't smoke. <laughs> But, you know, we've had plenty of clients who smoke, Uh, but we've also had plenty of clients who smoke and, uh, you know, they've been tested at the roadside on a roadside breath tester and it's not a reliable test because they're smoking. Mm -hmm. And that's something we should probably talk about one day because we have that secret internal RCMP study and I don't think we've ever told the world about it. We haven't told the world about it. Can we talk about that in a minute? Because I wanted to talk about a couple other things that the researchers identified as likely contributors to recidivism. Hey, it's, it's your podcast, Kyla. You, you talk yeah, about whatever you like. Talk about it when I want to. Okay. So um, the first thing that uh, they identified, um, obviously, and, and the things that I think we can we can expect, um, are people who are in like socioeconomic positions of disadvantage were more likely to be recidivism, uh, be have recidivism. Um, they were more likely to uh, more likely to engage in those types of behaviors again. Men disproportionately more likely to reoffend than women. Very very low rates of reoffending for women. And of the women who reoffended, there were identifiable clear factors that contributed to that. That is very interesting. Like, should we only refer men to the responsible driver program? I, I think that would be a viable thing to do because I have to tell you, I cannot think of many women. I mean, uh, uh, there's been a few clients, obviously, who are notable mm-hmm. for me, but uh, for the most part, very few female clients on, for impaired driving cases or IRPs or anything like that are ever coming back with another one. Maybe they just don't like us. Uh, I don't think that, I don't think, you know, some people are too embarrassed to come back and I have had clients tell me, you know, you did such a good job last time. I feel like I, like I wrecked the cake that you made. Yeah, no, I know it, it is true. And the ones that I have had that are women that have reoffended, I have been able to identify some specific, very like 
localized trauma or turmoil or factor, but put them in that position. Whereas like with my male clients that have come back, I'm sometimes multiple times, um, you, you know, there's not always a reason. Sometimes it's just I was partying and then I was partying. True. Um, they also uh, found that um, recidivists were more likely to be older than first-time offenders. Um, and uh, recidivists, though, are typically younger than 30. Um, they're low-income, uh, low unemployed, low-education, often associated with recidivism. Um, and uh, among males, specifically associated with, and this probably did not surprise you, divorce, separation, or uh, being widowed. And I would say that I've seen that, so that's why I would say it didn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, our clients, some of our male clients who are recidivists, I would have seen that. But, then this is but I, w I wouldn't necessarily have predicted it, though. I mean, it's not something that I would have intuitively thought of. And, or the cigarette smoking or any of it. I mean, none of this would I would have thought of. Uh, the, the, the men versus women, yes. Yeah, because we can see that. And the divorce and the separation. like the, Those know, are traumatic things trauma. that happen yeah. in people's lives that lead them to have some injury, uh, incapacity to, to make good decisions, or maybe they made bad decisions and that's what led to everything that fell apart in their life. But the smoking. So let's go back to the smoking because you want to talk about smoking on the breath test. And when I read this about the smoking, at first I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But then it occurred to me that maybe these people aren't recidivists at all. I know. Maybe these are unreliable breath tests. Yes. And that is a would undermine their entire study. And that would, uh, would be something that we would have to write a study in reply saying that their study failed to consider the fact that breath tests after smoking are unreliable. Now, there's an interesting yeah. history, and you know this history, and I know this history too, but I've been <laughs> had to repeat it lately, uh, but it's not something that we, we tell people often. So no. when the um, AlcoSensor 4 DWF, which is the approved screening device, uh, roadside breath tester, still approved in BC but not used anymore, when it was introduced, they came up with a plan to deal with smoking. And I know one of the people who worked in the RCMP lab at the time, and he told me that they just thought it was probably not good to blow cigarette smoke into it. And their concern at the time was that it would damage the sensor, the fuel cell, the tar from the smoke, uh, you know, because tar in your lungs accumulates from a smoker would damage the fuel cell. And so they decided to introduce, I think it was a three-minute, a five-minute originally, five-minute period to wait after a person had smoked a cigarette. Now, that was never tested. And my understanding was that they never contacted the manufacturer. And the manufacturer gave no clear indication of what to do after cigarettes. And their concern was that the manufacturer was not wanting to point out a potential flaw in the thing, and the way that they're used in the United States as a PBT, a preliminary breath tester, wouldn't have really mattered anyway, because there's usually a few minutes have passed by that time before they get to it. Most of the time when they use a PBT in the States, it's after they've done standardized field sobriety tests. So enough time would have passed without the person having a cigarette. So they came up with this in, in Canada 
that you wait. Now, when the Alcosensor uh, FST was introduced, they originally had a three-minute wait period. Then they changed it to a five-minute wait period. And my understanding for that is that they did it because police officers would not remember all these different waiting periods. Three minutes, five minutes from eating, three minutes from smoking, five minutes from eating, 15 minutes from alcohol. They just decided five minutes, and that's what they put in the manual. And again, the concern was not reliability of the test. The concern was damage to the device. Now, when the Alcosensor 4 DWF was taken from service, they did something with it. You know about this. Take over the story. Uh, when, I actually don't know where you're going. Oh, they tested it. Yeah. They tested it. They took them, and they were so worried about damaging the fuel cells, they never wanted to do the test when it was working, um, when it was in service. But since they took them out, they were like, well, we're going to mash them all anyway. That's literally what an officer told me in Cross. He's like, yeah, we smashed them all. What? Why didn't you give them to me? <laughs> Just in court, in the middle of court, broke character. I was like, but why didn't you give them to me? I would have taken them. <laughs> um, uh, the home for lost breathalyzers. <laughs> the, um, so they, they took them and they tested. They spoke and they blew smoke into the device to see what would happen. And it didn't damage the fuel cell as they had predicted. It didn't hurt it. But it did trigger a reading. Yeah, so this happened at the uh, at the Heather Street detachment at the RCMP toxicology lab. That's my understanding. And it was two different lab uh, workers decided, you know what, let's take these old Alcosensor uh, Alcosensor 4 DWFs and test them with cigarette smoke. And so they blew some cigarette smoke in them and they did some tests. And they did tests with underlying alcohol and cigarette smoke. And what did they find? It didn't damage it, but it increased the reading significantly. Like you could get a, a fail with one beer and cigarette smoke. Uh, and you could get to the point of getting an IRP in those circumstances. And three minutes maybe wasn't enough. Maybe it was enough. Uh, but uh, certainly because there's, there's, turns out there's ethanol in some cigarettes, uh, but we don't still know the feature of it. But they did the study the beginning of the study, they got the preliminary results, they found out what was going on, and then they didn't go further. And there's a yep. couple reasons they didn't go further. We got this. Well, uh, that which you don't know can't burn you in court. Yep. They didn't want to know about it, number one. Uh, they were asked, should we go further with this? And it was the answer was no, because then we would have to put it in the manual and explain it. So that was number one. Number two... They couldn't find enough RCMP officers who smoked to have a study that would be a reliable study. What does that tell you? Tells you tells you some interesting things. Most of the time, most of these studies are done on RCMP officers, healthy people who are are generally in good condition. Mostly, um, the. Um, that they decided that they didn't want to know, they'd rather have the blinders on, is frankly uh, just... Yeah, if our clients are willfully blind, they get convicted. Yeah, exactly. The willful blindness here is is just astonishing and should be very upsetting to people. So we got this in this uh, internal study. We managed to get it through a Freedom of Information request. And when we looked at it, we couldn't believe it. And we use it in our hearings because we've got it uh, for immediate roadside prohibitions to lay it out. In the manual, the Alcosensor FST manual, which you'll find published on the BC government's website, it's kind of hard to find, but it is there. 
Um, it doesn't talk about uh, false readings. It only talks about potential damage to the device and the recommendation to wait five minutes. And we also got in a Freedom of Information request a discussion between people who are involved in writing the manual, which sadly includes some of the people who are uh, working in the lab. And the discussion in the emails is we don't want to change the manual too much because it'll look bad in front of the court because the science shouldn't have changed and we should know what we were talking about. And so they won't change the manual to correct it. They won't change the manual, for example, to include all the myriad of reasons why a person would not be able to provide a sample and, or, or for a police officer to deal with it. And they won't change the manual to explain in the manual that it's actually an unreliable sample if the person has been smoking. Um, Sorry, so that was long. No, that I was hope it, I hope it was worth it. <laughs> it. It was totally worth it. But I also had another thought. Now, you and I have talked before, and Jan Semenoff has talked with us about this as well, that when they originally did the studies related to the breath-blood partition ratio, so, you know, blowing into a breathalyzer equating to your blood alcohol concentration, how did they figure that out? Well, they did a bunch of studies on healthy European men in the 50s. What they put in cigarettes in the 50s versus what they put in cigarettes now very different. They're far more toxic and addictive and disgusting now. More chemicals and crap in there that, you know, gets you hooked and keeps you hooked. Because I have no idea. I can't imagine that they've changed it a whole lot. And I, I oh, would think have. they haven't. Really? Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I will take your word on it. But, but even that, like, you've got, <clears throat> think about smokers. Everybody smoked in the 50s. And so they came yeah. up with a partition ratio based on everybody who had, had smoking effects in their lungs, right? Um, and does it still affect, is it still the same for people who have really healthy lungs? I don't know. Well, I actually, um, uh, I actually wanted to talk about the impact that smoking would have on your lungs over the long term and how that might change your partition ratio. Perhaps the damage that you do with long-term smoking to your lungs, and you know, the shit that we breathe in generally is much more unhealthy now too. But perhaps your lung physiology changing as a result of smoking and the damage that's being done affects the partition ratio or the 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 obtaining of deep lung air or something related to that uh, that would contribute to false readings. Alternatively, like when you're when you're blowing, right, you're getting that alveolar air with those little like hair-like things at the bottom of your lungs. If those are coated in all of the cigarette ingredients from long-term smoking, the tar and the tobacco and the ethanol, is there perhaps a base concentration of that in your lungs at all times that's contributing to your reading? Something that they should study and I don't think has ever been studied. And what is the different, basically, what is the different partition ratio between, uh, is there a difference in the partition ratio between somebody who's been a long-term smoker and somebody who's never smoked. Yeah. Um, but these I, are things that aren't never that. studied. And, you know, you, I've been thinking about partition ratio a lot lately, and I've been thinking about reading some of these lately? decisions. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about, yeah, for 18 years, um, <laughs> when I first started to wrap my mind around it. So I'm always thinking about it, and I guess, you know, that it has had some uses for me. 
but you know, you think about partition ratio and you also think like the government could just legislate that you're guilty on the basis of breath, which is what they've done. Uh, and basically taken away the defenses for so many different things there. Uh, but they've done that and made it to the point where basically the only thing you could do is get a blood draw and you can't get a blood draw, um, you know, to prove it. You could, you could establish for the court on a different day by going into a lab to show that your partition ratio is not, uh, not properly reflected on the, a breath test. And that would not be sufficient mm -hmm. in our current state of the law. Not a not a bad segue to the next topic. If the next topic's the topic I'm thinking of, what the next topic is about Nista and Tesla. Oh, okay. Oh, you know, I was thinking about that Saskatchewan case. We'll have to talk about that someday. Yeah, I don't think we'll have time today, <laughs> but we have a Saskatchewan case. It's very interesting, but not today. Not today. Okay. Uh, today we're going to talk about. Have we fin Have we really finished the cigarette smoking? What's our summary? Oh, Do we summarize no, at the no. end? We, we haven't finished it because there's one other thing I wanted to say, and that was about deterrence. If recidivism, as they're studying, is connected to things that don't actually have to do with your propensity for criminality, like they have to do with your socioeconomic status or uh, whether you're, you happen to be going through a divorce the second time you get a DUI or how many cigarettes you smoke or, um, you know, your your uh, presence of psychological illness, which they found was actually a, a factor. If you're psychologically ill, you're more likely. Then how do Canada's laws for repeat offenders make any freaking sense? Well, they like discriminate. They discriminate against you because you've got a, uh, mm -hmm. you've got a, uh, an addiction to cigarettes. Mm -hmm. They discriminate yep. against you because you come from a different, uh, uh, a more difficult socioeconomic background. Uh, they discriminate against you on the basis of the fact that you have a propensity. Uh, and that and is that, a lot of criminal law does. Well, but, but the Crown has, you know, often <clears throat> said, well, you know, it's, it's those people who can afford those fancy DUI lawyers um, who get out of it more often. So therefore, um, the tougher penalties don't discriminate um, because you're more likely to um, just get a lawyer. I don't know. I, but I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you're, you're, I've never liked you, that. you have a good point. But uh, I guess my concern is the, is the discrimination aspect. Yeah. And I think, you know, arguably there is a case to be made for a challenge to the increased penalties for impaired driving on the basis of the fact that deterrence is not actually achieved, at least to some extent, according to some of the findings in this study, deterrence isn't necessarily going to be achieved by using the big gold judicial hammer. Well, you know, somebody should come and also interview known us. Also gavel. Somebody should say, yeah, we don't use gavels in BC. The provincial court was all upset because there was always gavel photos every time the court was mentioned. So now they have stock photos on the website that you can use so long as you, <laughs> you give them some credit. Um, no gavels. gavels, no gavels. Um, the, um, yeah, it's a, uh, uh, I've been making some sort of unique arguments in sentencing cases in the last couple of years. Uh, about uh, alcohol being a disease and recognizing that factor 
And mm -hmm. I have said, had some pretty good uptake by the court uh, yep. when I've talked about it. So, you know, we have in British Columbia a really shockingly good provincial court bench. Um, I've said that before. I'll say it again. And uh, I think some of those arguments and some of those points could be uh, could be things that are picked up by the bench if we start making them. And we should. Okay. Well, Tesla. Let's talk about Tesla because, as uh, many people probably know, if they've been following the Tesla autopilot issues, uh, Tesla has had a bunch of problems with autopilot that has caused multiple crashes, and two of them resulted in death because the autopilot system turns out isn't perfect, which just you know, give well, me a little bit more job security. <laughs> it isn't perfect in some interesting ways. I mean, this these um, accidents were took place in circumstances where the Tesla was on autopilot and the collision occurred with an emergency vehicle. So if you're a police officer or an ambulance driver or uh, ambul a paramedic at an ambulance with your ambulance parked on the side of the road or a uh, there with a fire truck, um, it looks like you were under significant risk of being struck by a Tesla on autopilot. They yeah, theorize just wants to de defund the police. Well, they theorize that the red and blue light flashing lights or the flashing lights basically confuse the autopilot and sure. the Tesla's crashed into police vehicles. And there's some pretty like scary photographs of, of, uh, damage caused to police vehicles, for example, and people getting hurt. Uh, as a result of Tesla's basically autopilot targeting a police car. Mm -hmm. um, and the, uh, the, they are, Tesla must respond uh, shortly, I think by the beginning of November, to explain why they didn't recall them. Um, otherwise, they face up to $114 million in fines. Yep. Which yep. is, is, fascinating because as we see these Tesla accidents and these Tesla um, Tesla concerns arise with respect mostly to the autopilot and I would say like generally speaking Tesla seem to be pretty damn safe I mean they, they do great in crash tests and they do fairly well better than most other cars in crash avoidance but in these certain circumstances we're seeing very devastating accidents and it's novel things are novel features of the vehicle where they are facing a really significant um, significant possibility of being mired in litigation for years and years to come. And this happens sometimes to new businesses that get started. They come up with an idea. Their idea seems like a great idea. They budget for, you know, producing the project, the, the item or whatever it is, selling it, their whole industry is based on it, and then they end up in some lawsuits for it, and then they are facing some significant um, significant litigation as a consequence that, that they don't calculate. They didn't sit there and think to themselves, oh, we invented this great new uh, stationary bike, um, and you can ride it and there'll be a coach at the other end. Uh, cheering you on um and then they find out that the stationary bike hurts a bunch of people mm -hmm. 
I mean, what's interesting to me about this is there there is a legal dispute here, right? Like NHTSA has a, a legal role in the U.S., um, similar to Transport Canada, where they make determinations about what is, um, you know, wh- when a recall is supposed to be issued. Um, they're supposed to be notified by car manufacturers. There's legislation that covers all of this. And if Tesla's just doing their updates over the air, and a lot of Tesla's everything is running using a computer. Situations that might actually amount to legal recalls, where it requires NHTSA approval and NHTSA notification and NHTSA logging it, get missed. And it connects back to Canadian law too, because you can I, I can guarantee you that like Transport Canada is concerned about this in the same way. They're you know concerned about Tesla and their autopilot. We already know that. They're concerned about the way that. Um, that Tesla's not being forthright with information. Um, I think there's even some lawsuits against Tesla, um, if I recall correctly. And when it comes to impaired driving or dangerous driving cases involving death, and there's a mechanical inspection of a vehicle, if there are recalls, that's information that the accused is entitled to be disclosed. It's information that's relevant to the prosecution of the case. Um, and it's information that might indicate whether there was a reason the vehicle got or caused an accident, especially one involving a death. And if Transport Canada doesn't know about over-the-air updates that were or were not done on the Tesla and couldn't know because that information isn't out there because their Tesla's not reporting it, there are innocent people who might be convicted as a result of Tesla not giving the information to the government. I didn't even think of that. Didn't yeah. even think of that. Yeah, like this has massive consequences judicially. If you're driving a Tesla and you're using the autopilot system, you're not negligent in using the autopilot system. Uh, it's certainly not criminal negligent. But what if the the Tesla swerves to drive into a police car? You could be charged with dangerous driving um, mm-hmm. and uh, dangerous driving causing death um, mm-hmm. and maybe dangerous driving causing death because you were using the autopilot. I don't know. And you've got a... a Certainly a I'd defense. Say that's a departure. <laughs> yeah, you've certainly got a uh, a defense of some sort. Um, but I just keep thinking about the litigation of this. Like Tesla, Tesla is one of the wealthiest com- companies in the world. Um, they're they're the the amount of money they've got, uh, you know, relative to their capital, like their their functional capital, the the capital that keeps their business running, uh, is just ridiculous. They've got so much money. Uh, their stock value is incredible. And they don't have any of those sort of legacy litigation concerns that sort of General Motors has and Ford and everybody else from, you know, various different things they could be sued for in their former vehicles. And they are racking them up fast. And it may have some significant uh, impact on Tesla's stock price, Tesla's value uh, in the future. Yeah, they're taking risks. Uh, You know, you admire their risks. But. Uh, it's pretty easy to argue that it wasn't tested well enough. Mm-hmm. Yep, I, uh, I, I think so. I mean, I think it is. Uh, I, I think that there is. <laughs> you know, Nissan is producing electric mind. cars. Hyundai is producing electric cars. Uh, GM's producing electric cars, and none of them are driving into parked police cars on the side of the highway. Well, none of them are having over-the-air updates. Uh, that uh, allow you to use the car in an autopilot mode that hasn't been regulated at all. Going to be uh, going to be regulated more and more and more and more. 
quite clearly. Why, why the government is so behind on regulating this? Like, honestly, do you think there would be like multi-party opposition to the government saying no autopilot? Uh, autopilot is illegal. Like, put it in the criminal code, put it in some Transport Canada regs, whatever. Like, uh, if you put it in the regs, then you don't even have to have multi-party support. But, like, how is this How is this not on a legislative radar? Every car manufacturer who sells a vehicle in Canada, it has to pass some Canadian government inspection. Um, yeah. And the Canadian government can make regulations for things like, you know, bumpers and lights and you name it. Uh, yep. uh, regulations for autopilot? Um, I would imagine they are very different, and I'm sure they've thought about it, and I'm sure there are regulations about it, but um, it's a complex thing, and it's going to be changing so fast. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a uh, if you're thinking of a career in government regulation, <laughs> going to driving, government driving. regulation of Teslas and autopilot vehicles, that might be the, cool. uh, that might be the future for the next 50 years. Regulation of driving because it's you know it's not just Tesla and autopilot. It's there's so, the technology now that we can incorporate into our cars and use with our cars requires so much fast change to legislation. I mean I've made this point about the distracted driving legislation in BC that the legislation has to keep current with the times. I can do things with my phone now that weren't contemplated in 2010 when the law came into effect. I can go you know hey Siri text Paul Doroshenko, it's time to move on to the next topic. And my phone will do that. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, that's not happening. Um, that's not happening and being reflected in our legislation, which still prohibits texting while driving as a separate offense and doesn't distinguish voice text. Complete texting prohibition. You think of, uh, think of the, the here, here's the emblematic thing about it. Think of the sign that's out on the highway reminding people not to use an electronic device. The cell oh, yeah. phone looks like a, a, a simplified version of a Nokia flip phone from 25 years ago. My children look at it and they're like, what is that? A calculator? You're not supposed to be using a calculator? Is that a calculator with a leather cover on it? I mean, you aren't supposed to be using a calculator, so yeah. There you go, electronic uh, device. Anyway, I hope you picked up my hint there, Paul. Go ahead. Because it's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Excellent. And uh, Wrigley's excited. Wrigley's excited about the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Bark three times. Uh, pepper to make it quiet and mm. it's made him more loud <laughs> so this ridiculous driver is actually a ridiculous city um this is watford uh i guess england um somewhere in the uk uh where they set up bollards um to try and control traffic flow because they didn't want big trucks driving through there so they set up these like posts to try and narrow the road width and they narrowed it to seven feet seven feet wide that's like a parking stall. It's amazing that they would do that. Um, and, of course, there was the consequent result. The consequent result, after narrowing it, is that there have been hundreds of crashes, including one resident filmed outside his window, 11 crashes in four weeks, because the road is too narrow and people can't navigate it down it. Including a police vehicle. Yes. <laughs> like, how, after hundreds of crashes, 
seven, and you can find video on this on the Daily Mail, um, which I know is not a great source, but like these people just like smash directly into these things. They're only two feet high, so you can barely see them from the front of your car, and people just go plowing right into them. It's actually quite amusing. The videos are funny because the vehicles look like little cartoon characters. I often find engineers are kind of arrogant. And road safety engineers can be as arrogant as any other engineers. And whoever designed this, whoever thought that this was a good idea and that it lasted beyond the construction of it, like you'd think you would see it the moment you, it was built, you'd be looking at it going, oh my gosh, people are going to hurt themselves here. Like this is going to be, this is bad. What are we doing? What did, what did we do? How the fuck did we design this like this? Like After the first couple of weeks going, you know, maybe we should take them out. But no, they are not removing them. They are there. The city has not done anything. Um, it's insane. It's a ridiculous city of the week. The ridiculous city of the week causing yeah. ridiculous drivers all the time. Well, the video, um, so the video is pretty good now. Video is great. Well, sad. I'm sad actually. I, I hate to see cars destroyed. It bothers me, especially when we've got this chip shortage. You can't replace your car. Right. Global supply chain issues. You know what I think every time you say chip shortage. Yeah, you think of potato chips, and pretty soon we're going to have a global potato chip shortage because we're not going to be able to get those potato chips to market. So you should be concerned about that, and that can be a discussion for another week on driving law with Kyla Lee. No. All right. Well, that's our episode. <laughs> uh, if you need to reach us for any reason, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.